Uh, today's sermon is called uh, The Pride of Herod. You know, there's a, an annual report uh, that comes out every year called the World Watch List. Now, what the World Watch List is, is an assessment of 50 countries uh, where Christians face the most severe types of persecution. Now, the top of the list are countries that many of us expect or have heard before, North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia. But what's interesting is that when you read the, the 2019-2020 uh, World Watch List, it ends by saying that for Christians and persecution, things are going to get worse. That's just how it ends. In fact, it says that Christians who are being persecuted for their faith has dramatically increased in 2019 and that it has dramatically increased in the beginning of 2020. And it says that the trend follows that it is going to increase exponentially in the future as well. Now, what we know is that in China, over 5,000 churches have been destroyed. We know that in India and Nigeria, there have been at least 3,000 known cases of Christians being killed in 2019 alone. What we see is that this report shows that the persecution that Christians are facing is getting worse and worse. And what this also tells us is that for Satan, he is working harder and harder to kill God's people. And I know that for many of us, these, these stats can seem kind of disconnected. And, and for us as Americans or people who live in America, the idea of physical persecution is just such a far, far away reality that we never really think about. But I believe it's so true that Satan is still just as active in America as he is anywhere else in the world. Now, he may not be physically persecuting Christians here, but I believe he is doing everything in his power to divide the American church. You see, Satan will do everything possible to divide the church. Satan will do everything possible to divide the modern church and our church. 1 Peter 5.8, it says this, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It's not a coincidence that Satan is compared to a lion. Because what we know about lions is that they hunt by dividing the herd. They pick out those who are alone, those who are weak, and they eat those. And that's why church, more than ever before, I am crying out to you that we have to be united, that we cannot be divided. And I want us to realize and I want us to focus because our enemy is not other Christians and our enemy is especially not other non-Christians. Our enemy is Satan. The Bible is very clear when it says that our fight is not against flesh or blood, is not against other people, is not against you, and it's not against me. Our fight is against spiritual evil. You see, there's one truth that we have to be really clear about. It's in 2 Corinthians 4.18. Because Paul, he says this, 
We look not to the things that we can see, but we look to the things that are unseen. And what he's saying is a simple truth. That if you try to rely upon your five senses, that if you try to interpret the world through your sight and through your hearing, through your smell, through your touch, then you will be divided. Satan will win through that. But your first priority and the first way that you should be processing the world has to be through God. It has to be the words of Scripture. It has to be the Bible. It has to be your understanding of who God is, your understanding of the character of God, your understanding of the history of God, your understanding of the promises of God. And when you start with that foundation, then the processes of the world are going to make more sense to you. And no matter how much Satan tries to divide you, no matter how much Satan tries to divide this church, he will never be successful if your foundation is built upon God. You see, the reason I bring this up is because when we look at this passage, chapter 12 in particular, the premise and, and the, the thesis is so simple. It's that God is more powerful than this world. And when you fight against God, you will lose. That's it. I think for us, when we process the world and when we look at the world through our own vision and through our own five senses, it can seem like God is so weak. It can seem like he is so distant. It can seem like the evils and the suffering of this world are having an upper hand on him. And yet when we look at scripture and when we look at the Bible, we see that he is sovereign over all things. And that when it comes to his purposes and his plans, there is nothing that can thwart him. And we see that any single person or any single country or any single nation that goes against God and the purposes that he has planned will always and have always failed. We see this all through scripture. Because Pharaoh, he fought against God in Exodus, and it cost him his son and his life. The five kings in Joshua 10 fought against God, and all five were slain and hung from trees. We know that the kings in the northern kingdom all fought God, and yet what happened? They all ended up dying terrible deaths. And today, what we see is we come to one of the most famous examples of a king who fought God and lost. In this sermon, we're going to look at Herod. And we're going to look at three things. First is the sin of Herod. Second is the power of prayer. And third is the victory of God. Now, first is the sin of Herod. Let me read to you verse 1. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. You see, chapter 12, it starts out by mentioning a king named King Herod. Now, if you've attended church for any amount of time, you know, you've heard of the name King Herod. Now, you, I think that you may have heard of King Herod when Jesus Christ was born, right? And you know about King Herod. That's not the same King Herod here. Let me give you uh, some background. You see, King Herod, he was part of a royal family. 
And that's why we hear the name Herod so much in the Bible, because it's similar to how we think of Caesar or Pharaoh. It's almost like a, a kingly title that, that is given. King Herod's grandfather was Herod the Great. He was the one who was in power when Jesus was born. He was the one who tried to kill Jesus. Now, what we know about Herod the Great was that he was a terrible man. He had many wives, he had many sons, but he also killed many of his wives, and he killed many of his sons because he was afraid that they would take over his throne. In fact, towards the end of his life, King Herod the Great commanded that multiple prominent families be executed the day that he died because he wanted to make sure that the entire nation was mourning on that day. How ridiculous is that? Now, fast forward a few years, we see that King Herod the Great, his grandson, was this man who is mentioned today, Herod Agrippa I. Verse 2 and 3, it says that King Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was, this was during the days of unleavened bread. James was the brother of John, and what we know is that he was one of the leaders of the church. And what we see is that when Herod kills James, it greatly, it greatly pleased the Jews, and therefore Herod goes one step further, and he arrests Peter. You see, church, the reason why God was so upset with King Herod, the reason why King Herod died, the reason why there was a sin that was so powerful in his life was because that sin was the sin of self-centered pride. For Herod, what drove him to kill Christians was not because he was against Christianity. It was because he thought it would make him more popular with the people. For King Herod, the reason he cared so much about what other people thought was because for him... His life revolved around him. Everything was about him. He was the center of everything good in his life. You see, King Herod was delusional because he truly believed that everything he had was because of how hard he worked. It was not because of God. He did not give thanks to God because he believed that it was all through him. He was foolish because he believed that he could receive all credit instead of God. And because everything was around him, the approval of others meant so much. And so when it was good and people loved him, he was on fire and he was good. And yet when people hated him, when people despised him, it completely broke him. There was the same with his grandfather and it was the same with him. Church, I know that the area many of us struggle with is approval. For us, we want to be liked, and we want our reputation to be perfect in front of others. And look, that may not be a bad thing by itself, but it becomes bad when that's your motivating factor in making decisions. That's the important part. Seeking the advice of others Wanting to have a good reputation, those are good things. 
However, when they become your motivating factor for all of your decisions, that's when it turns into pride. And that is the sin that God truly, truly hates we see, that we see in this passage. We know this because the Bible says you should care about what other people think. Proverbs 12, 15, it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. It's a good thing to listen to the advice of people you trust. The Bible says that our reputation is important. Proverbs 22, 1 says, A good name is better than great wealth. But the sin is when the advice and the reputation come above everything else. And that includes God. We work hard to follow what other people say, and we work hard to keep our reputation, and slowly what happens is that we think we earned it all. But when we put ourselves in front of God, what happens is that we take his glory and we put it upon ourselves. The Bible, in fact, says that we are robbing God of his glory, and God will not stand for that, and we will lose. The question is, how do we fix that? Remember 2 Corinthians 4.18. Look at the things unseen rather than the things that are seen. The question has to be, what's your starting point? What's your foundational point? How are you processing these thoughts? How are you making your decisions? Is it first by thinking about what other people are going to think of you? Is it first by thinking about your reputation in front of other people? Or is it first by thinking about what God would like most? Is it thinking about pleasing the Lord? Is it thinking about your reputation as a child of God first? That should be first. That should be your priority. It's a good thing to seek the advice of others. It's a good thing to protect your reputation. But don't do it at the cost of putting God first. This was the sin of King Herod. Now, second, this passage it shows us the power of prayer. Verses 4 to 5 says this, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the, by the church. Peter was put in prison by King Herod, but God wasn't done using Peter yet. God still had plans to accomplish, and so what happened? Simple. God just took him out of prison. Isn't that interesting how Herod was the king? He was the most powerful man there, and yet... Trying to stop God's plan was like trying to hold on to the wind. It was impossible. That if God has a plan to accomplish in someone's life, it doesn't matter how powerful you are. It doesn't matter the situation of your life. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you have made. It doesn't matter how terrible things are. God is going to accomplish the plans that he has for you. If Herod and legions of soldiers and locked doors couldn't stop God's plan, then how in the world is anything going to stop God's plan from being accomplished in your life today? And church, what we see here, this is important, is that through prayer, God uses his power. A Christian who walks with the Lord, who has walked with the Lord for a long time, you know the power of prayer. 
James 5, 5.16, it says, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. The entire church here, they knew that James had died and they knew that Peter was next. And so what, the, so what did they do? They prayed fervently and they prayed passionately for Peter to be freed. You see, when you read verse 5, when it says that they prayed fervently, another way of saying that is that they prayed to their limit. It means that for them, their fervent prayer was like them stretching out their muscles to their maximum capacity. Now, I love that illustration because for us, what we have to realize is that prayer is your greatest tool as a Christian. That is a muscle given to you when you become a believer. And that for many of us, we have not prayed. And so that muscle that we have, where we can run marathons, where we can run sprints, where we can lift so much weight with, it has atrophied and has grown smaller because we just do not use it. And so my challenge to you, church, is that use the tools that God has given you Use the muscle that God has given you. That when you believe, God has given you this powerful tool to speak to him, to change the course of this world. So use it. And look, it's not going to come overnight. You're not going to be able to run a marathon in one day. And so if you have not prayed before, if it's been a really long time since you prayed, that's okay, start small. Build up. Just pray. And so what we see is that as this church prayed fervently in verse 7, it says an angel of the Lord appears and tells Peter to get up. This angel knocks the chains down and he leads Peter out. Now, we know that this isn't a small feat because the, the cell was locked up. We know that guards were chained to him. We know that the gate itself was closed, and yet it just opened automatically. And finally, Peter, he arrives at the door of Mary. And inside, what we see is that there are people there praying for Peter, who is at the door. They are praying for his freedom when Peter is already there knocking at the door. And it says a servant girl comes up to the door, sees that as Peter, runs back to the disciples, and says, and says it's Peter. Peter's at the door. And their first response is, you are out of your mind. This cannot be true. And yet the servant girl repeatedly says, no, no, I saw him. He's there. He's there. And so what do they say? They say, it must be his angel. You see, what that means is that they were so unbelieving that they were so faithless, even in their faithful prayers, that they reverted back to an old Jewish belief that everybody had his own angel. And it was that angel of Peter that came to see them. They were so unbelieving that they were turning to this untrue theology to back up what they were thinking they were seeing. There was no way that God would answer their prayer that quickly, and yet he did. Church, I love this story. And I love their reaction. Because every time I read it, man, I am just filled with so much thankfulness 
because God is so gracious. He is so gracious that he still answers our fervent yet faithless prayers of the people here. I know that for a lot of us, man, we can be passionate in our prayers, and yet I know that for myself, I can pray so faithlessly. God, would you do this? Would you accomplish this? Would you heal this person? Would you heal this other person? And yet, when it actually happens, oh, man, that's actually, I didn't actually believe that that would actually happen. And yet what we see here is that God, he is so gracious to these disciples that even in their passion and even in their faithlessness, he is still willing to accomplish his plan through it. This is the power of prayer, church. Do you see that? That even in our faithlessness, God is still able and willing to work through our prayers. Prayer is powerful. And lastly, church, what this passage shows us is the victory of God. Verse 22, 24 says this, And the people were shouting the voice of a God, and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. In this passage, the angel of the Lord appears two times. The first time is to free Peter. The second time is to kill Herod. You see, when God took Peter out of prison, it was a miracle. There was no doubt about it. There were multiple witnesses. There were people who saw, who could not even believe that the door would be open, that the shackles would fall. It was a miracle by any stretch of the imagination. And when Herod heard about this, you see, he had two options. He had two paths that he could go. The first one is that he could see the power of God, the sovereignty of God, and repent for all that he's done. He could turn back to the Lord and he could say, God, I am sorry for what I've done. I'm going to worship you and you alone. Or he could do what he did here. And that is to be stubborn and to say, no, no, I'm right. These people are wrong. So I'm going to have all of these guards killed, and I want people to worship me. And that's what happens. For him, his pride did not disappear. It simply grew. And so what happened was that because the people knew how upset Herod was, they tried to make him happy. They held a special event. And during the special event, Herod gave a speech. And it was then that people began to call him a god. And instead of refusing that praise, Herod accepts it. And by accepting it, he was robbing God of God's glory. So God sends an angel to strike Herod down. And it says that Herod is eaten by worms and dies. Now, we see these two truths. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. And it is only a fool who fights against God. This passage ends in verse 24 when it says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. No matter what, the work of God will continue, church. 
no matter how terrible persecution is, God will continue his purposes and his plans. No matter how divided people can seem, God will not stop. Jesus even says in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know this to be true because we know our Savior. For Jesus Christ, even he cannot be held down. Even for him, the people there who spit and tortured him, the people there who nailed him to the cross, they didn't realize that even death could not hold him. Acts 2, Peter says, you put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. There is nothing that can fight against God and win. There is no one more powerful than our God, and there is nothing that we should fear if he is on our side. You see, in 2 Kings, there's a story, one of my favorite stories. And it's about this king who goes at night and surrounds this small city with uh, chariots and horses. And so the city wakes up in the morning and they realize that they're completely surrounded by this king's army. And so one of the people, they come up to this prophet who's there, his name's Elisha. And he says, what should we do? We're outnumbered here. And he says, Elisha says this one thing, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And so what happens is that they open their eyes and they see that the hills are covered with chariots of fire. Church, I want you to open your eyes. I want you to see what is in front of you. That it is not this world. That it is not our five senses. It is not what we can see or hear or touch. It is God who is in front of us. That is the spiritual things within this world. That our fight isn't against flesh and blood. It is against the evil powers in the spiritual realm. But trust and know that the one who is for us is so much stronger than the one who is against us. That God is more powerful, that he is more sovereign, and that there is nothing in this world that can thwart his purposes. Amen? Let's pray.